Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Dr. Casey Grover here back again as your host. Before we start, I want to explain why there is now an advertisement at the beginning of some of the episodes. I have been doing this podcast now for about two years, and each episode takes several hours to put together. Spotify offered to pay me a little bit for my podcast, and so I took them up on it. I've put in hundreds of hours into this podcast, so the tiny amount of income I will make for this ad is appreciated. Now, if you find the ads completely intolerable, let me know. I will include my contact information at the end of this episode. So, moving on to today's episode. I have been looking forward to this episode for weeks. I have the distinct honor of interviewing a colleague of mine who is in recovery to talk to us about family dynamics in addiction. And with that, let's get started. All right. Well, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here today. Why don't you start by telling us who you are and a little bit about yourself? Okay. Hi, my name is Cassandra. Um, I am 29 years old. I am originally from Fresno, California. Um, I moved up to uh, the Monterey Coast area in high school. Uh, and, you know, funny enough, that's where my addiction took off was Monterey High School instead of one of the scary um, wand waving high schools in Fresno. <laughs> so it, that kind of always trips me out that part of my story. Um, yeah, but I've been clean for seven years and I'm a mom to two kids. Uh, my oldest is six. So that means that, you know, my kids have never seen me under the influence of drugs. And that's kind of my hope that it, it stays that way, you know, for their entire lives. Tell me, how would you say addiction has affected your family? <laughs> okay, so my dad and my stepmom are addicts. My mom and my stepdad are addicts. My grandparents on my dad's side and my great-grandparents are addicts. My aunt is a functional alcoholic. <laughs> um, and then I have uncles who are in motorcycle clubs um, and who are also addicts. So uh, you mean to say quite a bit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, almost. It would be easier for me to write a list of people who are not addicts in my family than it would um, to write out who is. So, Do you feel like you were kind of destined to end up with addiction given that history? So that's so funny. So while I was using, that was my favorite excuse. Like, look at me. I'm, I'm born into this. But I have five brothers and four sisters, and I'm the only addict. <laughs> wow. Very interesting. So um, as I was studying for my boards in addiction medicine, the American Society of Addiction Medicine says that addiction is probably somewhere between 40 and 60% inheritable. That's a very interesting 
uh, family dynamic. Um, yeah. I'm curious on the flip side, how would you say your family has affected your life in recovery? Um, you know, they, I don't want to say they made it difficult. Um, but even to this day, like if I showed up at a family reunion and I grabbed a beer out of a cooler, nobody would say anything to me. They would think like, Oh, Cassandra's having alcohol. That's acceptable because you know, it wasn't her favorite thing or like, you know, the drug that destroyed her life. So they made it harder because I have to have like really good boundaries, but I was also extremely uh, codependent with my parents um, because, you know, they have been clean on and off throughout my life and they've gotten it together and then lost it. And so I did get clean this last time. They were clean for a short while and then relapsed. And so watching them um, and then, of course, you know, throwing money at them so they weren't evicted and cars didn't get repossessed and trying to save them from themselves. I feel like it put me on the other side of it. And it gave me like this unique clarity into how they must have felt seeing me do that to myself. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, I was at a middle school yesterday doing some education and I was talking about how the family dynamic is so important in addiction. And I was explaining to the kids, you know, if a husband and wife both have a problem with alcohol and one tries to quit and the other doesn't, it's a, it's a struggle. I'm just curious, what was it like when you were trying to get help, but the rest of your family wasn't or vice versa? You know, it was really weird because I would have my parents drunk, you know, with like pill bottles in their hands telling me to get clean and go to rehab. Mm. And so it was like, always like this weird, um, like, okay, hypocrite, (laughs) you know, but I could tell at the same time, like I could tell they meant it. Like I could tell it was hurting them seeing me like that. Um, but when I finally did, you know, like I said, they, he was actually, my dad was actually clean for a while. And so it was like a, you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. Let's do this thing. And then when I got pregnant with my son, right after getting clean, um, my dad stayed clean for a while because he really wanted to be, you know, a grandfather to, to my son. Um, but you know, as the unfortunate reality goes with addiction is that often children aren't enough, you know, to save someone from themselves. You know, the addiction is stronger than the love that we have for our kids. And if we're not regularly taking care of it, then it tends to, you know, creep up on us. And that's what happened for my dad. He was able to, you know, go back to the doctor and, and get, get more pills. And then once that doctor stopped writing the pills and he was back in the alleys, getting his pills from somebody else, you know? Um, so even like, even just hearing him say like, I'm proud of you, you know, I'm like, why don't you want it for you? <laughs> why don't you want this for yourself? Like, why don't you want to be proud of you? You know? So I actually haven't talked to him in like the last year um, because I stopped giving him money. <laughs> and so as soon as I stopped um, just being so codependent with him, it just kind of altered our relationship and then finding out some of the things that he's done um, in his addiction that have severely hurt other people, um, kind of when he's using drugs, make him a huge safety concern for my kids. So, uh, it's been a journey, Yeah, (laughs) lots of therapy, lots of talking about it in, you know, in 12 step meetings and, um, lots of processing. (laughs) 
Yeah. yeah, I was going to say that's a nice segue. The the listeners won't be able to see that you have a child on your lap, but uh, they'll be able to hear some coos and calls. Um, how are you approaching parenting, knowing that addiction runs in your family and that you have a, a history of addiction yourself? So honesty, um, as my son's been old enough to start to ask questions about you know where his grandfather is, um, I try to just give him super honest answers that are obviously age appropriate. Right. Um, so right now, because he's six, um, pretty much what he knows about my dad is that my dad's sick and he puts things in his body that keep him sick. And while he's putting these things in his body, um, he's not himself and he's not safe to be around. So if you ask my son, like, where's, you know, where's grandpa? He'll tell you like, oh, he's sick. Okay. <laughs> he's sick. I can't be around him. And so that's kind of what he does. And we actually did um, some of those flags together and he made one for my dad. Um, so I just, you know, that's what I try to do. I try to be as honest as possible. And if he overhears something at a meeting that he asked me questions about, or, um, you know, he talks to someone and they say something about my dad or, you know, Ryan's, my spouse's brother, my brother-in-law, who's also, you know, suffering from his addiction, then we just try to be honest and age appropriate. Yeah. And now both your kids are are here with us. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love the multitasking of parenting. Yeah. Okay, why don't you take this and lay down? Something on my tablet. So uh, I was actually going to ask, and I know you're you're multitasking parenting here. So I appreciate you you taking some time here. Um, when yeah. did you? At what age did you start talking to your son about substance use? When he was old enough to ask questions. Like, well, how did that come up? So uh, my dad, while he was clean, was his babysitter, and. Um, so he was there, you know, five days a week, um, six days a week if I had school. Uh, and so it just kind of got cut off immediately. And so he asked, um, we had gone over there to pick him up and it was blatantly obvious that my dad had relapsed, you know, opiate addicts fall asleep while standing up and there's zero two one eight. There's a very, very, uh, obvious signs. Um, so we just cut it off right then and there. And after a couple of days of not going there, he had, he asked me why he couldn't go there anymore. And so that's kind of how it opened the door. Uh -huh. Um, Sorry. It's okay. Like I said, you're multitasking with kids here. It's so funny. We're talking about family history as you're actually actively parenting your child while we're talking or children, I should say. Yeah. Uh, you were just saying how you, you cut it off with your dad and then you had to it, it raise questions for your son. Right. Right. And so, and he does still ask time to time, like he'll ask me, you know, is he better yet? Or is he still putting things in his body that make him sick? And, and so we just kind of, I really didn't want to, to be honest with you. I really wanted to like helicopter mom, protect them from the world and all the scary things outside. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I'm actually really grateful for it because I feel like my son has this compassion for people, like even just seeing homeless people on the streets, he'll be like, mom, we should give him a blanket or, um, you know, he's sick. We should do this, you know? And I, I think that that's something that's a, a gift in a way, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I guess this is a, a question that we've, we've kind of asked is, um, as your kids get older or with your six-year-old, 
do you have like a specific plan about how you plan to talk to them about addiction? Are you just kind of letting it come up or? I'm just kind of letting it naturally happen, you know, since, especially since we have so many people in our family who are addicts and who, you know, aren't actively seeking some kind of recovery, you know, whether it's 12 step programs or spirituality or this, you know, anything to help them stay clean. Um, the relapses happen. And so as they do, we just adjust our boundaries. And that kind of, I feel like naturally raises questions for my kids because, you know, why was it okay to see them yesterday, but not today? And why is it, you know, so I just kind of let it naturally evolve. Um, I think that as he gets older, like especially middle school or high school, um, I'm definitely going to talk to him just because, you know, I was the nerdy straight A student. (laughs) You know, so um, I did, I had straight A's all the way up until high school uh, and loved school. So I know that it's not always the people that we expect it to be. So watching his friends was my original plan. But then I really thought about it and I'm like, oh, I lived in Monterey, (laughs) had friends who were like, you know, the good kids and still uh, we were using drugs together. So that kind of threw that plan out the window. So I really, I, I'm hopeful that our relationship will continue to be as close as it is and as open as it is so that if he has the questions, he can bring them to me forever. Um, but also, you know, middle school, high school, sitting him down and really explaining to him uh, what exactly it is that keeps our family so divided and mm. a space between everybody. Yeah. So, you know, I have to say, and, and, you know, I have, I have a daughter, she's, she's 13. Parenting is the single hardest thing I have ever done. And it's funny, you know, there's the mnemonic H A L T hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's the time people are most vulnerable to a relapse. I tell my patients, that's when I'm a bad parent, you know? And and I was going to say, how how do you deal with the stressors of being a parent while being in recovery? I remember we were at Target and there was a brand of wine called Mommy Juice of like, oh, mommy needs her juice too. And I feel like a lot of parents self-medicate because parenting's hard. So how do you take on those incredible challenges of parenting uh, being in recovery? (laughs) You know, I honestly, there are days where I feel like I really uh, do it amazingly. And I, you know, I make sure that I have self-care time and like me time and I can read a couple chapters out of a book by myself in the quiet or I do homework or um, something that I really enjoy doing that's mine. And then obviously I go to step meetings. Um, I am super active um, of service in various ways, like to my community. Um, I do do esteemable acts to feel good about myself. Um, but then like, if I'm being super honest, there's days where like, I'm crying, sitting on the toilet in the bathroom with the door locked, eating a Snickers because it's just too much. Um, but I just, I just don't give up. You know, I hold honestly, uh, with the parenting, there were so many days where I was that little kid on the front porch, you know, with my bags packed because my mom said she was going to be there and she never showed up. And so, um, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, and I knew that I was going to have him and keep him and take care of this, these kids. Um, I just kind of decided in that moment, I'm never going to do to them um, what was done to me. And I just, 
I honestly, I just fight like hell every yeah. day to try to make sure it doesn't happen. You know, if it makes you feel any better, there, my wife and I had plenty of days where we were curled up in the fetal position parenting. So <laughs> yeah, it's like that sometimes. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Our, our daughter was exceptionally colicky and just, oh my gosh, it was so hard of just being so sleep deprived and emotionally raw and please don't cry again. So, mm-hmm. hey, I got to say respect. Night. You have two of them. We only have one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So um, I was going to say, when it comes to, you know, your recovery, um, do you still get cravings and how do you deal with them? And how do you think being a parent affects getting cravings and dealing with cravings? You know, I don't know if it has to do with being a parent per se. It's honestly, I worked so, so hard to change my behaviors and my thought processes that made it so easy for me to justify using because, you know, I didn't just use drugs. Like if it was a bad day, I used drugs. If it was a happy day too, (laughs) happy day, mediocre day, good day, you know, awful day, worst day of my life I was using. (laughs) So it's not for me. I I can't speak for, you know, every addict out there, but for me, um, after about the two years, which I know it's kind of funny that I, that's what I say, because that's when post-acute withdrawals kind of stop. Mm. is two years into recovery but after about two years of um, really working on myself and trying to really evaluate like why I believe the things I believe um, changing things that I believe a lot lot of my beliefs have changed since being clean you know um, I don't really get the cravings it's not my solution anymore I think that's what it was for a long time drugs were just my solution for everything happy sad indifferent they were the solution for it And so once I really practiced them not being my solution anymore, it kind of just stopped crossing my mind. (laughs) That makes perfect sense. How, um, how has your circle of friends and family changed from when you were using to now that you're in recovery and have you found like a, a parents in recovery circle that is supportive or is that harder to find? You know, I, it was super easy, actually. There was a lot of moms in recovery, a lot of dads in recovery, um, a lot of people that knowing who they were outside of recovery meetings, I would have never even thought were in recovery, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> so it was really easy to like find a little village. You know, I have some amazing women in my life today who all have kids and we kind of swap kids around and get the break that we all need sometimes. And Uh, We all help each other watch our kids in meetings. And if one of us is fed up, the other one like moms during the meeting. So it's pretty awesome. You know, we all just kind of piggyback off each other and support each other through this. Yeah, it's um, it's actually I I love how you said that, that you, you can't tell. And that's what I love about recovery is people in recovery look like normal people. And I I want to use that word normal carefully because um, I think it can be used to kind of make people with addiction seem kind of diseased or broken in some way. But I think it's more kind of coming back to your initial kind of point about telling your son, grandpa's sick. The whole point is to get people back into treatment and get their lives back. And we actually were just at a middle school last week and one of the parents came up to us that we've known for a while 
and I didn't know she was in recovery and she had some pretty dark times and some pretty heavy patterns of drug use. And it was so cool to have known her for several years only to find out later that she was in recovery. I'm assuming you've had that similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. And if it makes you feel better too, in a, in the 12 step meetings, when we're talking about family or friends that are not in recovery, we do call you guys the normies. (laughs) (laughs) Us guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The, you know, the, uh, people not in recovery, right. The people who can go to the bar and have one beer and go home normal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So. So since, um, since, since, uh, you know, I'm a normie and I haven't necessarily lived, uh, the, 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 the path of addiction. Tell me specifically about your recovery. What was your path from substance use and kind of, when did you transition? When, when did you feel like now's the time I'm ready to make a, 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 a kind of a, a big change? Um, so I started using at a super young age. I was, 13 or 14 when I first, um, started using, and then I was a full-blown meth addict by 16, um, and then moved into opiates, uh, right around 18 years old. Uh, so, and then, you know, by 21, I was using fentanyl. So my addiction so rapidly took off and I, you know, obviously was neglected by my drug addict parents who were 16 when I was born. Um, so I sought that approval and validation from people out on the streets, which took me, you know, obviously to some super dark places and into some very dangerous situations with some very dangerous people. Um, and I think a part of me deep down always knew that what I was doing was wrong. Like the little girl in me even in my 18 year old body that like was left on the front porch by mom was like, don't do this to yourself, you know, don't become mom. (laughs) And so it was like this, this struggle with myself, I guess you could say. And I was in my first 12 step meeting at 19 and it didn't stick for me. I ended up relapsing, um, did three times in a treatment center. And the third time it stuck for me. Um, but what did it was I had found out, uh, I had been violated by somebody that I thought was my best friend while I was in a, you know, drug induced stupor unconscious. Um, and it was kind of just talked about like, like it was not a big deal. And like, I was silly for being upset about it. Mm. And it was like this, what the hell moment for me, you know? Uh, so I, I just kind of realized like, well, this is one person telling the truth about one situation and I lie all the time. So I bet everybody else that's out here with me lies all the time. And it's probably happened to me more times than I know about. So I just kind of um, decided like for a split second really is all it took to say like, maybe, maybe I deserve a little better than this. And so, uh, my last time in treatment, I gave it everything I had and I did the assignments, even if I thought they were dumb (laughs) and I thought everything was dumb. (laughs) Uh, so I just did it anyways. Um, and then at about 90 days clean, I was living back at my dad's house and he was clean and I was clean and. I got pregnant by uh, somebody that I had met in the recovery who also only had like three months clean. Um, 
and he relapsed and I knew in that moment that like this was going to be on me like it's on me to raise this child um even if it's by myself and I'm not going to repeat the cycle like I'm just I can't do it so um that's what I've done I've like fought like hell every day it seems like um to make sure I have all the tools that I need to to not relapse and a lot of it was a lot of therapy, a lot of money into therapy, <laughs> um, but it was so worth it. Uh, and then 12-step meetings, I do 12-step meetings. I have a mentor. I mentor other women. Um, I actually today, so it's so funny that we're doing this podcast today because today I got the notice in the mail that uh, my record has officially been expunged. <laughs> so I've just... Uh, and even when I was scared, you know, and it's funny because in my recovery, I applied for a job as a tow truck dispatcher. So a very basic entry level job. They usually hire kids in high school. This tow company does to come in and help because it's very simple to do. And I was like petrified. And in that job interview, um, I was like super like dripping sweat. And he asked me why he should hire me. And I said, I don't know. I'm really sweaty and I'm nervous and I'm a drug addict. <laughs> And I had had like two years clean. So, but it was my first job in recovery. And so um, it was just funny because, you know, today, um, today I am employed, obviously, and go to school and parent these kids. And so I've just taken on like one additional responsibility at a time and then built this whole life that uh, I don't feel the need to run from anymore. You know, I get to run to my life instead of away from it. And so it's just kind of been this evolution of, of effort and faith. So let's, let's kind of follow that, that's that story that you mentioned about your, your first job interview. Do you feel like people treat you differently after they learn about your history with addiction? I, um, I'm assuming the answer is yes. And if so, how do you, how do you process that? How do you deal with that? So some yes and some no. Um, you know, it's funny because like, I always thought it was going to be this huge negative stigma. And to some people it is, and some people are very ugly about it and then make assumptions and judgments, you know, uh, but for the most part, it seems like people like me more oh, wow. <laughs> okay. know that I'm in recovery. Um, and it's pretty cool, you know, because I've, I've been homeless. I've been like living under bridges and um, running around, you know, with no shoes on in the rain, but haven't stolen my next pair of shoes yet. So in this weird limbo and uh, when I tell people that I'm an addict today, they're shocked. You know, like my boss at my current job, I told him um, I, on March 24th, I had seven years clean. And so I said something and the everybody at my work was like, what you, you're an addict. It was like super neat for me. Um, because I thought it was obvious. <laughs> you know? So yeah, most of the time people are like very positive, very encouraging. Tell me how amazing it is and how awesome, um, it is that I get to be a testimony for recovery. Um, you do get the occasional jerk that just doesn't get it. And, but mm. I mean, for me personally, those have been pretty far and few between. Do you feel like that the longer you are in recovery, the thicker your skin gets? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Especially, you know, I know who I am, 
me seven years ago, I crumbled at everything. If someone told me I was mean, I spent like a week not sleeping and thinking about that situation. And if I was mean and, and today it's really not like that. I'm, I have a pretty good grip on who I am. Um, and I know that a lot of people's, uh, what comes out of their mouth is based on their own perspective and doesn't have anything to do with me. <laughs> so, yeah. Since, uh, since most of my listeners on this podcast are healthcare providers, what do you feel like healthcare providers need to know most about addiction that you found that they don't know? I don't know. I would say probably not to take it, take it personally. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, I feel like, I feel like naturally a lot of people get so angry when they find out they were manipulated or lied to. Mm. And so I would assume that doctors are not, you know, you guys are people too. <laughs> and when someone lies to us or manipulates us or uses us for something, especially things that are negative, that hurts, you know, but, um, you know, the doctors were my dad's favorite people <laughs> because they never ran out <laughs> right. of what he needed. Um, and he, he does have medical issues, not rising to the level of prescriptions that he needed. Um, but what happened for him was once they found out he was pill seeking and saw the pattern, um, nothing he said mattered anymore about his conditions or how he was feeling or anything like that. So I would say that not to take it personally, it's not, it is intentional, but it's not intentional, if that makes sense. The lying and the manipulating. <laughs> yeah, it's a really interesting spot. I find myself a lot of times in the ER where I tell someone, I'm your doctor today. I believe you, but I get lied to all the time. So I just have to trust but verify. And on the flip side, patients sometimes really get offended by that. They're like, hey, someone else's lying shouldn't affect me and what happens today at the hospital or in the emergency department. Right. So, you know, I, I think of... You know, it's it's funny as a physician, my favorite patient is the person that goes, doctor, I need help. Yes, I am all over it. I am <laughs> here for you. Let's go. The ones that I think are really hard are the ones that really don't want help or and like are brought to the hospital against their their will on a 72 hour mental health hold. Um, and it's, it, it does, it does feel personal. It's like, well, but I, I just, I came to work today to help you. What, why did you lie to me? Or why did you manipulate me? And I don't know if I've ever actually talked about this with anyone. It's certainly not taught in medical school, but can you unpack a little bit what you mean again when you say don't take it personally? Because I think all of us as healthcare providers inherently take our, our patient interactions personally. So I guess. Um, so so it's so funny that you mentioned the 72 hour holds because, and I have never talked about this in meetings. I have not, I but I don't even think it was on my amends list. So it's going on there after this podcast. Okay. Um, I actually spit on and kicked a doctor at a local hospital who was trying to help me um, because they saw the signs for my erratic behavior and uh, heard something that I had oversaid and noticed the track marks and everything. And so they wanted to hold me on a 72 hour hold. Um, and I, you know, my intention while doing that was not like, I'm going to hurt this person who's trying to help me. It was, they're trying to keep me here and not let me go get what I need. And I'm going to go into withdrawal. 
Hmm. And like, that was the only thing that I could think of was like 72 hours. I'm going to withdraw. <laughs> I'm going to be released at the worst of it, <laughs> you know? Um, Cause the third day of, of fentanyl and heroin withdrawal is the worst. <laughs> yeah. I cold turkeyed it every time. You know, it's funny so, you mentioned, it's funny you mentioned that I was going to say I was working in the ER maybe about a year and a half ago and they brought in a person on a, 5150, uh, 72-hour mental health hold. The 5150 is what we call it here in California. And she was just really kind of like kind of maximum agitation, very confrontational. And I go in and, hey, I'm Dr. Grover, and I just got screamed at. And so I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> hey, I can help you today. And I got screamed at. And I just took a shot in the dark, and I was like, do you need any Suboxone? And she stopped, looked me in the eye, and said, not yet. <laughs> and yeah. then, and, and that was like how we finally made our connection of like, yeah. Hey, look, I, I actually, I actually want to help you on this. And she actually kind of chilled out for a little bit. And unfortunately it was a, a methamphetamine psychosis she was in and we helped her calm down. And tw 24 hours later, she was ready for some Suboxone. And actually I ended up helping her after she was discharged. I refilled her Suboxone once and then got her into a, a program. But it's so right. funny. You mentioned that because I just total shot in the dark and that actually ended up what was working for me on, on that particular day. Yeah. And you know, it's pretty awesome that that's the knee jerk reaction now, because when I did that, it was about, about 10 years ago. And so I got like really nasty comments because I didn't like other people poking me with needles. So naturally the nurse trying to do my IV made comments about, Oh, but you can do it yourself. <laughs> Well, it's funny yeah. you mentioned that. I, I interviewed a young man on my podcast, two of my last two episodes, and he really, I think, struggled when he was in treatment with the snide remarks from healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. And I think as healthcare providers, we feel like, I know this patient's in trouble. I'll, I mean, I, I also think of the number of times I've heard my colleagues write discharge instructions to patients of stop drinking alcohol immediately, it will kill you. And thinking like, I did it. That's, I'm going to, that, those eight words are going to be the thing that makes this guy stop drinking. And I feel like as healthcare providers, we feel like we spent our whole lives, we know, we, we see the disease, we see the harm, please listen to me. So I, I, I think as a healthcare provider, you know, I initially used to make those remarks. I think now my remark is like, I, I feel like you're in a tough place. What can I do to help? Yeah. And I think that, I think a lot of it has to do with like the the stigma around it, of course, you know, but also it's thinking that addiction is rational. Like I knew that putting an IV substance in my body that's made with things under my kitchen sink <laughs> in a bathtub. Yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> you know, and um, it, was, it was killing my friends, you know, and I knew that because I had gone to funerals, obviously. Um, but I, it wasn't rational. Like addiction isn't a rational disease. It's completely irrational and completely random. <laughs> and, you know, my, like my sister drinks occasionally, she can drink a glass of wine with dinner and put it down and walk away. And I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, like, so I think that's the thing is like, it's, if it were rational, then stop drinking. This is going to kill you. You have about a week. Totally work. Right, right. <laughs> well said. 
So, you know, I, I, I was thinking about, you know, kind of generations of addiction. And I was thinking about, you know, I see so often, you know, people who lived in a home with addiction, their parent was the one that first shot them up. Or I was just thinking as we're talking about this, one of my classmates in seventh grade, his dad gave him cannabis. You know, tell me, how do you think about those generations of addiction and how you're breaking that in your family by raising your kids in a substance-free home? Um, so it, like I said, it felt really heavy at first, especially because I felt like the weight of like my children's futures were on my shoulders. And, um, like I had to not only break the addiction generational curse, but you know, all the generations of curses that come with it, you know, like abuse or neglect or like hyper awareness around like, am I disciplining my kids or abusing my kids and is this trauma based or is this like real parenting tactics you know and so once I kind of like took a deep breath and realized like if I just focus on my addiction and the behaviors that led me to use whether they were behaviors of my parents um, or mine and I just fix those behaviors everything else will kind of fall into place and so it's kind of funny because like, you know, my son's six and so he's finding his, his own opinions and belief systems. And when he says things like this house sucks, it's not fair. You know, we don't, you don't buy me anything, which <laughs> I just kind of laugh to myself and I'm like, oh my goodness, you have no idea. And, and thank goodness you have no idea, you know? So it's pretty cool to like see him and like his little six-year-old mind and like, he thinks it sucks living here because I don't have batteries that day for one of his toys <laughs> <laughs> or he can't play on his iPad today, you know, Love parenting. Yep. Yeah. You know, I'm the worst mom and I got to go back to the mommy store because no tablet today, you know, it just, it feels great. It feels so good. And it's like, you know, even the hard days, it's like, I, I have that to be grateful for because as long as I continue to do what I'm doing, he will never know. You know, he will never know what it's like to come home and see an eviction notice um, on the counter or have the landlord there screaming or to, you know, be careful with what I drink out of the fridge because is there alcohol in it or is it is it safe? You know, um, he'll never know those things. And so I'm just super, super grateful uh, for it. Well, I have to say, I've been seeing the kids running around in the background of your Zoom screen and it's dinner time. So I want to let you go. Just before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to share about recovery, family histories of addiction and kind of where you are in life now? Um, no, you know, just that uh, where where there's breath, there's hope. And it, it might be the first time that somebody gets it, but it also might be the hundredth time that it takes for them to get it. And uh and yeah, that's really it. And so thank you very much for asking me to do this. It's uh, It's been an amazing experience. <laughs> yeah, I have to say I learned so much. I appreciate your time and, and uh, the work that you're doing. I know you work in a reentry program. And then also um, that you and I are working together on uh, our local recovery run. I've been honored to get to work with you and looking forward to seeing you at one of our upcoming events. Same, same. <laughs> right <laughs> thank on. Thank you. Well, have a great rest of your night. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. And that is the end of this interview and of this episode. 
If you find this podcast helpful, please share it with a colleague. And if you've got a few spare moments, please give this podcast a review on whatever podcast app you are using. If you'd like to reach me, I am on Twitter with the handle at addictionemac, or you can reach me via email at addictionemac at fastmail.com. That's fastmail, like F-A-S-T, dot com. Thank you for listening, and thank you for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.